Well, we were uh, in a series uh, about the Philadelphia Church, and we're addressing the leadership of the Philadelphia Church here at the moment, and have been for, I guess, for a few sermons. Uh, and we got into the book of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, in fact, last time we came down to the end of Zechariah 2, uh, where the God is, says he is going to select Jerusalem yet again. Uh, it's been desolate for many generations, but he's going to select it yet again, and the church yet again, uh, both spiritual and physical Jerusalem. So he says that here in chapter 2, uh, that it's, that what we're talking about is at a time when the northern army is about to invade this country, which appears pretty imminent now within however long it takes. Could be months, could be a year or so, who knows, but it's very imminent. And he tells us in chapter 2, verse 6, to flee from the land of the north because we've been spread abroad, the church has been scattered and says to deliver yourself in verse 7, uh, O Zion that dwells with the daughter of Babylon, or as the RSV puts it, flee to Zion. So the church, which is spiritual Zion, is to flee to physical Zion at a point in time just before the Assyrian coalition comes against America. So he says he will take care of the church in verse 8, and... If anybody tries to hurt us, uh, his, his gathering will be the apple of his eye, and he says he's not going to allow his people to be harmed. In fact, he said at the beginning of this chapter that he would put a wall of fire, whether it be physical fire or just symbolic of protection, who knows. But as long as we're protected, I don't care whether it's physical fire or not. It's really neither here nor there. So he says he will, verse 12, inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land and choose Jerusalem, verse 12. So he's going to bring out a remnant, a tithe of his church that was basically with Sardis, <coughs> and that is when Philadelphia will be born. So here he's talking in this context about the leadership of the Philadelphia era as it comes about. And we got down to chapter 3, which is where we'll actually start today. Uh, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the eternal, uh, and Satan standing at his right hand. So one of the leaders here, we'll see uh, there's two, Joshua and Zerubbabel. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 14, it said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. We'll get into that more later. But the only place that the anointed ones are mentioned as two prophets is in Revelation 11. So uh, this part of Zechariah is referring to those two prophets of Revelation 11. So with that background, we can see here that Joshua is represented as a high priest, uh, which means he will be in charge of the ministry. I'm sure that when God calls uh, a remnant, there will also be a remnant of the ministry as well from old worldwide that will show up because some of them uh, probably are being faithful just like um, the congregations are. But he's going to gather them from here, there, and everywhere to come. So uh, here's this Joshua standing before the angel of the eternal and right beside him standing at his right hand was Satan. 
as it says in the King James, to resist him. Uh, the Hebrew there says he's standing at his right hand to be his. In other words, to take him, to destroy him, to uh, include him in his group instead of in God's group. So uh, Satan is very, very aware of the church today, and he is very aware of those who will be doing God's work. Uh, he has no... He has no problem finding God's people when he's cast down there in Revelation 11, and the church has to flee for safety uh, from Jerusalem at that time. There's two flights. There's one coming up soon where God gathers his remnant from around the world, which will not be a hasty thing uh, like Matthew 24, because that's when the abomination is set up in the temple at Jerusalem. And he says, don't even leave anything behind, or don't go back and get anything, but hurry or you'll die. So this is a flight where you flee before the Assyrian army. Jeremiah 50 says that they'll start asking, how do I get to Zion? Uh, they'll learn that this is the area they should be in, and they'll want to know how to get here because a lot of people have never even heard of Zion. <laughs> I mean, Zion National Park, a lot of people are not even aware of. So... Uh, he will start gathering. But Satan knows very, very well where God's work will be done, and he knows God's people uh, very well. And he is very aware of this Joshua spoken of here and is doing his best to make him his, to take him over uh, and to take him away from God. So uh, that we have to be aware of, that Satan is as a raging, a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour, and he has specific targets that are more important to him than others. So he is right there to deal with the leadership, just as he was with Peter and James and John and Paul and all those who started the New Testament church under Christ. Uh, he was there trying to influence. And in fact, at one point, Christ told Peter, get behind me, Satan, because he realized that the attitude that Peter had at that point was not a godly but a satanic attitude. So, now this is a very real circumstance right here at the end, and it's we're in the timeline of history now where uh, the northern armies are gathering, war plans are being made, and the invasion of this country is not very far away. So this remnant and this gathering has to come pretty soon now. I'm not going to try to put a, a day and time on it. Uh, it's foolish to do that, but... Uh, it is near. There's no doubt about that, just looking at the way things are. So Satan is very, very active. Uh, verse 2, And the Eternal said to Satan, The Eternal rebuke you, O Satan, either the Eternal that is chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So God will be gathering spiritual Jerusalem, the church, together, and, and he has to rebuke Satan from its midst because he will be there trying to destroy uh, as much as he can. And he often uses people to do that. So uh, we'll see all kinds of attitudes uh, that Satan is using people to try to destroy. So he said, is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? So if you have a, a fire, a campfire, let's say, and you have sticks in the fire, uh, those sticks, if they, if they stay there, they will burn, whether it... Uh, slow or fast, and uh, a fire here could be one of several things. 
this is prior to the return of Christ, so we have the fire of tribulation which is coming, and 90% of the church of God is going to go into the great tribulation. So it could have been plucked out of that fire in a larger sense, uh, plucked out of the lake of fire for that matter. Uh, that's, that's where we go uh, from our sins unless they are forgiven. So with this particular individual, God has plucked him uh, as a brand from the fire. And I think that that would be true not only of the one who represents the people here and represents the ministry, but would also represent those people who are called out uh, because 100% of the church would go into the tribulation if God did not bring them out. If he didn't stir them to come out to finish his end-time work, they'd all go in. So if God stirs us and we come to be part of what he's doing at the end, then we all become brands plucked out of the fire. If it's speaking of the tribulation, and it probably is, and if we don't repent, and the church doesn't repent during tribulation, then the lake of fire uh, comes up next. So, what level of fire do you want to talk about? But weren't we all plucked from the fire? Uh, weren't we called out of this world originally? Uh, and beginning to be converted to God's way of life so that we don't suffer the fire that is about to come upon the world. And then we went through the fire of scattering and all that happened within the church, and then God is going to draw a 10% remnant out of that and protect them from the fire of tribulation coming. So this, this would include any and all of us, not just the one individual here, whom God is plucking out from what is coming. But this is about an individual as well. Verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So uh, this individual had sins, obviously, or will have. Uh, and he answered and spoke to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. So uh, to be a high priest, it spoke of Aaron, uh, you had to first cleanse yourself and put on the holy garments before you could represent the people before God. So Ab uh, Abraham, uh, Aaron went through that every time before he went into the Holy of Holies once a year. Now we can all go to the Holy of Holies every day, any moment, because of Christ's sacrifice and the breaking of the ripping of the veil in, in two, giving us access to the Father. But uh, the high priest had to be cleansed in order to represent the people. And he was an individual himself, so he had sins just like they did and had to be cleansed ahead of time so that he could represent the people before God. So it is in that context that this is speaking. So he says, Take away the filthy garments. And to him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with change of raiment. So... Uh, clothes that were spotted with sin will be replaced with clean uh, clothes of righteousness, white garments, as we see from other places. And the sins, whatever they may have been with this person, will be forgiven, just as it will with all of us who have sinned before God, too, and are coming here to represent him. Isaiah 52 says that those who bear the vessels of the eternal have to be clean. So we all have to be cleansed in order to represent God. 
And the high priest here then represents the church, represents those who come before God that need cleansed as well as the individual himself. And I said, let them set a clean turban upon his head. So they set a clean turban upon his head and clothed him with garments. So the filth was removed and cleanliness was restored through forgiveness. And the angel of the eternal stood by. And the angel of the eternal protested, or said to Joshua, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my ordinance, that's what charge means there in Hebrew, uh, then you shall also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. So there were angels there, I don't know how many, uh, who were involved in this. Satan was there as well, who had been rebuked. Maybe he wasn't there at this point, but had to have been rebuked. Uh, so Joshua here, as well as all of us, are told that we have to keep God's ordinances. That would be his laws, his judgments, his uh, covenant, uh, everything that he set forth in the Bible that we are to follow. Uh, he says, you, you've got to do this if you're going to represent me. So he lays that upon us. Uh, whether this is an individual here, you shall also judge my house and keep my courts, uh, and will give you places to walk among these, uh, I think is speaking of heavenly beings, the angels, Christ. Uh, I don't know the exact setting of this particular chapter, but it's uh, put forth as being done, and perhaps the remnant uh, that is brought out, having or who will become part of the bride of Christ, they'll be right there within the very inner sanctum of God's throne with the Son, Father, the Son, and the Bride. So they'll have important responsibilities in the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. So it's an organized situation that God is talking about. Uh, Joshua is the leader and has people sitting before him, uh, like in a church setting. For they are men of wonder. Uh, my margin says of wonder or sign. Uh, so the men who sit before will be doing signs and wonders, or uh, Joshua will do signs and wonders, and the men that sit there uh, would be involved. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but I think uh, it means that men who are there involved will be doing some signs and wonders. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, the branch is we will find, I think, very clearly, speaking of Zerubbabel. Now, Christ is spoken of as a branch, but Zerubbabel is also a type of Christ. So I'll, I'll show you some scriptures about the branch here. But the branch, Zerubbabel, being brought forth, is something that, that occurs, it appears, as a result of these signs and wonders that are done, because that will get his attention. There are scriptures that show that he, for the time being, is, as I put it before, out to lunch, or not involved. So this is something that happens before Zerubbabel shows up 
uh, in the time flow of things. That's why Zechariah 3 is written before chapter 4, where uh, they are listed together. But this is a work that is done ahead of that, and it is some signs and wonders, I think it is fairly clear, that will cause that to happen. Uh, let's go to Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah 52 just for a moment and, uh, and see a tie-in with that. Here he's talking uh, in chapter 52 to the church, and he tells it to wake up and put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. So that ties in very well with Zechariah 3, where he says Joshua was clothed in clean garments, and here he's telling the whole church to put on their beautiful garments. So I don't think I'm out of line in saying that the Joshua there uh, is not only an individual, but represents... Uh, the congregation or the church itself. And here we're all supposed to put on our beautiful garments. And then the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come to you. That means that heretofore, before this, uh, the unclean and the uncircumcised had been coming. They purported to be members perhaps, but were not really. Uh, and they had been coming. So he says to shake yourself from the dust, arise and sit down and uh, quit being walked on, as he says down here a little bit later. Um, let's skip down to verse 7 to get to the point I'm, I'm working toward. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, Your God reigns. Now this is... Uh, this is stated in a little bit different way back in Isaiah 40 where a voice is crying in the wilderness and he uses the same imagery, the same example back there. We'll get to it later, uh, so I won't go there now, but keep that in mind because it ties with this. Same, same verbiage. So this is someone who is coming, uh, speaking these things and saying that God reigns. Verse 8, your watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. So it's speaking of one. Notice the first part of verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him. So that's one, not two. So one comes with this message, and then it says, they, they or your watchmen, uh, two, uh, or more than one, shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing. So, there is one bringing a message, and then the two sing together. And when does that occur? For they shall see eye to eye when the Eternal shall turn again, or bring back, or turn around and bless Zion. So, when God turns, uh, he's going to start doing signs and wonders, as we see there in Zechariah 3. And that is going to get the attention of Zerubbabel, who will then come and join together, and they will see eye to eye and sing together when this happens. Uh, verse 9, Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, uh, both as a congregation, as the people, and the waste place of Jerusalem as it now stands, uninhabited, the physical city itself. For the Eternal has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. So he's going to redeem uh, his uh, his 10%, his remnant, 
from the world out there before the fire hits. Um, so it shows there that one will uh, bring the message and then the two will be joined when God turns it around and begins to redeem and bless and do these miracles that we're reading about here in Zechariah 3. So let's go back to Zechariah 3. Uh, he says, Behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. Uh, there's more about that in chapter 6 here, which we'll get to. But I want to go to some chapters where this is referred to. And let's, let's investigate the branch a little bit here, because it's important to understand who the branch is. Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4. This is one we're all probably pretty well familiar with. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. So there's seven churches who will take hold of one. We're going to see in chapter 4 of Zechariah that uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua are speaking to and giving oil, uh, providing God's knowledge and spirit to seven. Uh, so here you have seven churches uh, who will take hold of one man. He will build a temple, as we'll see. He's the one primarily responsible for that. Saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name, to take away our reproach. So people who are about to go into the tribulation, uh, whose churches have been destroyed, there in Zechariah 11 it talks about three, uh, three ministers, three works being destroyed in one day, or in one month, I guess it is. So these people are going to be left without anywhere to go. Uh, uh, Financial collapse will be there. The, the northern army is going to be coming in, and they will have a reproach. They won't know where to go. But elements, or a remnant, or some, from all seven of the churches will show up and take hold of this individual that we're talking about here. In that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent, and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And that's spiritual Israel first here. Uh, it ultimately applies to Christ coming back and everyone taking hold of him in the millennium. But that's the biggest and last fulfillment. This is ahead of that. And it speaks of what we read there in Zechariah 2. It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem when he washes away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and it purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by judgment and burning. And he'll create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, and the glory shall be a defense. In the millennium, it won't need to be there as a defense because Christ and the Father will be there, and they will be the defense. So this is talking about before that. There'll be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. So this is speaking of a time when there is still scheduled to be storm and rain, speaking of trouble and tribulation and difficulty which are about to come. So this is in this age, and a wall of protection here is the same that's mentioned there in Zechariah 2, a wall of fire as a defense. 
So there's one about the branch, speaking of he who they will come to. Let's go then to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And here I want verse 15. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to go up to David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. Covered, we saw a wall of fire. So this is speaking the same language. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So he says he'll give righteousness, his righteousness, so this is speaking of the very same time and this branch of righteousness. Now let's go to uh, Zechariah. Oh, let's see, we were already at 3.8 of Zechariah. I was just writing these down. Let's see. Isaiah 11, 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall go up out of his roots. Now, chapter 10 is talking about uh, the Assyrian and the destruction here at the end time of the age. Now, we have used Isaiah 11 almost entirely over the years as a reference to uh, the millennium because it got quoted nearly every year at the feast about the lion and the lamb and, and all of those things that are found here in, uh, in chapter 11, and indeed it does ultimately refer to the time of the millennium when Christ is the ultimate branch. But this is still in a time of trouble that we're talking about here. But this branch will grow up, and the spirit of the eternal shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the eternal. Uh, he won't judge after the sight of his eyes or reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness and so on. But uh, let's go on down to verse 12. After all the goodies there in chapter 11 that we always quote at the feast, uh, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So we know that God is going to stir a remnant to come and they'll be from all corners of the earth. So uh, here is a fulfillment even ahead of the time when Christ will bring Israel from, physical Israel, from all parts of the earth. Now let's see, let's go to Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel 17 and about verse 22. Let's start in uh, verse 19 and pick up the context a little bit. Uh, 18 talks about the breaking of God's covenant and, and uh, people despising him. Therefore, thus says the eternal God in verse 19, As I live, surely my oath that he has despised and my covenant that he has broken will I recompense upon his head and spread his net before him. So this isn't speaking... Uh, just of the millennium by any means, because there's still punishment being needed out here. Verse 21, And all his fugitives with all his band shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds, and ye shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. So we're speaking here of, still of a time of trouble and sword and scattering. 
Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and will set it, and I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs, and bear fruit, and be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches, and so on. And all the trees shall know that the Eternal has brought down the high tree, exalted the low tree, dried up the green one, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So here he's also taking a branch from the high cedar, a twig to start with. And we've gone through Ezekiel 17 before to show that this is very clearly speaking a worldwide church of God and Herbert Armstrong and Joe DeKotch and how things went in the church and then God shows what he's going to do afterward. And that's what verses 22, 23, and 24 are talking about. So a branch is planted to start over, to build a latter temple. So the branch spoken of here in Zechariah 3 is not Christ himself, uh, but is speaking of an individual branch that God will raise up who will be a type of Christ. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. So Christ is starting something through this Joshua, and as the signs and wonders occur shortly, uh, the eyes of all seven churches will turn to that. And we've already seen in Isaiah 52 that it is going to be when God turns things around and begins to bless again, to give signs and wonders, healings, various things of that nature, that it will catch the rebel bell's eye and he will show up and then they will see eye to eye and sing together the things of God. So uh, what God is starting ahead of time will, by the miracles, have the eyes of the seven churches turned to it. It will also have the eyes of Zerubbabel turned to it, as Isaiah 52 says. There's a, a reference in Isaiah 41 or 2, somewhere right in there. I won't go there now. I'll get it later. But it says that uh, God's servant is blind and deaf. Now, we used to read that and speak of Herbert Armstrong because he was almost blind physically and almost deaf physically. But Zerubbabel is, at this point, blind and deaf spiritually, even though it says there he's, he is a righteous man, but he's blind and deaf to what's really going on. He's turned his ears and his eyes away from it, although he has been apprised of it. So anyway, uh, he will not show up until uh, those miracles happen, and the seven eyes will turn to whom? Christ is the stone. It's not Joshua, it's not Zerubbabel. Christ is the one who founded the church, and he is the one that is going to start up this end-time church, the latter temple, and the seven eyes will turn to what? To his miracles, to his signs, to his wonders. Because men can't do signs and wonders. That has to come from God. So God is going to start to cause those things to happen, and then eyes will, the eyes of the people will turn to what is becoming the latter temple or the Philadelphia church, which is going to be raised up out of the remains of what is left alive of Sardis and of Laodicea, which is where the whole church is right now. And uh, this will be something that comes out of that, not something that has occurred yet, uh, 
there is not a church that has existed up to now that Christ hasn't found fault with. But he didn't find fault with Philadelphia. That latter temple is going to outshine everything that has happened heretofore. And it will be only a remnant of righteous people who come to build it to be a light to the world. So anyway, uh, Christ is the stone upon which it is founded. He will do the signs. He will do the wonders through men. And then the eyes of the church will turn to it. Seven of seven churches, just like seven, will take hold of one man there in Isaiah 4. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal. He will put his stamp, he will write upon it, uh, of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So, uh, makes you wonder about Passover. Maybe there's a tie-in there in the springtime. Uh, but some of these signs and wonders may occur ahead of time in order to gather the people and then... Uh, Passover will be coming up, I think, shortly thereafter. If we get into Isaiah 52, 3, and 4, we've already been to 52. Uh, it speaks of Passover time in 53, and then the growth and people coming uh, in 54, which would probably be after Passover. So if it's going to happen this year, uh, if the collapse and the in invasion of our country is going to happen in the next few months, uh, I think that the signs and wonders would have to occur far enough ahead of Passover for people to begin to truly gather right after, uh, just ahead of the northern army. So, is this a year or is it not? I don't know for sure, but the way things are looking in the world, it very easily could be. That's as far as I'll go on that. So, he's going to forgive and turn his face back to us in a day. He'll, he'll keep it turned away, and then suddenly it will turn, and then these things will begin to happen. They will grab people's attention. In that day, says the eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Uh, the only other place that it refers to it in this way is in Micah 4.4. 4. Uh, well, I'll turn back there just for a moment so we, we see the, uh, the significance of that. Micah 4. Here he's talking in context in the last days, in, in 4 verse 1. So what is following here is what is going to occur in the last days of this age. Not the millennium, but the last days that we see here. That God will be establishing uh, his government, his people, in the mountains, and exalted above the hills, and people will flow to it. So there's your gathering that is going to occur in the last days. And it says here, uh, the law will go forth from Zion, verse 2, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem, into verse 2. And they'll quit fighting among themselves and turn their spears into pruning hooks and so on and not fight among themselves anymore, which is what the church is doing right now, fighting among itself. Uh, there's Laodiceanism and self-righteousness that creates that and sin that goes with it. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. So here's a time of safety, of refuge, of covert, which we read in Isaiah 4, and it's in Isaiah 6, and it's in Zechariah 3 as well, 2 and 3 as well, and other places. And then it talks about the remnant coming in verse 7 and how our leader has died 
and we don't know what to do. Uh, Herbert Armstrong died and things came apart. And then it tells us a little later on to, to gather in the wilderness, uh, to go out of Babylon, but remain in Babylon, get out of the middle of it, and go dwell in the wilderness, and so on. We're very familiar with that, with that passage. So uh, when it speaks of the vine and the fig tree in Zechariah 3, it's speaking of the same time when the church uh, remnant starts coming together and God will protect them and help them. Haggai 2, I think it's verse 9, says, In this place will I bring peace. So uh, God is going to bring peace to his remnant church. It's uh, something that does not exist in the church at this point. And it cannot be until the remnant comes together and Christ brings peace. Uh, so Micah 4 and Zechariah 3, verse 10, or speak, uh, uh, yeah, verse 10 are speaking of the same, same thing here in the last days. So then going on down to chapter 4, the angel would talk with me, came again, and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. So there's a bit of a time lapse here. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Zechariah's attention was very, very much focused when Zechariah 3 was given. But here in chapter 4, it shows that he came again and woke me up as a man that's waked out of his sleep. So he, somewhere between chapter 3 and 4, he had gone to sleep. So whether it was a very short lapse of time or whether it was a little bit longer, we don't know. It doesn't matter. But it's, it's apart from, let's say. So that which occurred in chapter 3 has some kind of a time sequence separating it from chapter 4. In other words, chapter 3 is done first. So there's a change of scene here in chapter 4. And the angel to talk with me came again and waked me as a man out of his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? So it was in a form of a vision. I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. So a golden candlestick, a bowl, seven lamps, seven pipes to the seven lamps. Excuse me, my throat's getting a little uh, dry. The two, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So here's this candelabra with the globe, and two olive trees. So I answered and spoke to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, I'm just having this vision. I don't know what these are. Uh, then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal of hosts. So he says, what you see here, and what I'm about to explain to you, is something that's coming from God. It's not the power of men. It's not the leadership of men as such. Just as the signs and wonders come from God himself through men, and they turn their eyes to the, the physical men who are the leaders, but Christ is behind it all, and he's the one who supplies the power and the strength. It doesn't come from men. Uh, Revelation 11 even says, I will give my witnesses power to do plagues and to do all these things that are going to come to pass. So 
he's making it very clear here, this isn't a work of men, this is something that's coming from God. And the glory should all go to God, not to men. Uh, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. So, great governments uh, are going to be turned into plains. They'll be destroyed uh, by Zerubbabel, uh, Christ providing it. Well, what do the two witnesses do? Uh, they provide plagues. They turn water into blood. They shut off the water uh, wherever they wish and want uh, to fulfill God's uh, message to people around the world. So there's nothing that can stand against them. They will have no power against the two witnesses till the last three and a half days. Uh, and he will shout, Grace, Grace. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So I think what it's saying here is that Zerubbabel began something, and it was not finished. There's a lapse of time here. Uh, he had laid the foundation, but the house hadn't been done. Foundation was just laid. But they will also finish it. So not only did he lay the foundation, there will come a time when he arise, arises or arrives to finish building the house. We'll see in chapter 6 that he uh, builds the temple. Let's, let's tie that together here just for a moment. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 6. Uh, it's, it's speaking here to Joshua first, but it says, Speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Eternal. So we saw in chapter 4 that he laid the foundation, but he hadn't finished it. And it says here that the man named the branch uh, will go up from the place he's in. Uh, he will take on a greater responsibility, a greater job, go out from the place he's in, and then will finish and build the temple. We'll get to that in more detail later, <clears throat> but just to tie it in here so you see that the branch who does the temple uh, is a man, uh, not speaking specifically of Christ there, but a type of Christ, who builds the church of God, who builds the temple of God. Of course, Christ does. He's the chief cornerstone. So he's ultimately the overall builder, but he has always used men to do work. Did he not go away and leave it in the hands of, of the apostles? And they did the miracles. Of course, they came from him, so... He was there, and he was in charge, but he's working through men. He always has, always will, till there are none. So let's go back then to chapter 4. Zerubbabel is established there, here, as having laid the foundation and also finishing the temple. Chapter 6 says he's a branch, and he will build a temple. So Zerubbabel and the branch have to be the same individual. So when we read about the branch in Isaiah 4 and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's speaking of Zerubbabel, the man who comes uh, after a period of time and grows out, up out of the place he is and becomes a larger figure. Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel, 
With those seven, they are the eyes of the eternal, which run to and fro through the whole earth. So we have the eyes of the church on the stone, in verse 9 of chapter 3, with Zerubbabel there, with the acknowledgement that that what is happening there is what will bring forth Zerubbabel, the branch. And here you have the eyes of God with those seven, uh, which go to and fro through the whole earth. So what is going to happen here is going to be worldwide in scope. The two witnesses will preach to the whole world, uh, probably go from place to place and cover the whole world in that three and a half years. So the eyes of God uh, and the church, the seven churches who take hold of one man, are going to be involved in the work of God, which will be in the end time uh, a worldwide work, Philadelphia Church. And they will be given a door that no man can shut. And then when God shuts it, which he says he will do, no man can open it. So it's open for three and a half years, and in the last three and a half days, he shuts the door. <laughs> and they can't do anything more. They get killed. So it fits perfectly what we're reading here uh, about a worldwide work through the whole earth. So then God gets down to definition. Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right side of the candlestick and upon the left thereof? So he sees the golden bowl. He sees the tubes running, giving oil. That's what a lamp burns on is oil. God's Spirit is what we uh, do anything with that is done. Without God's Spirit, we can do nothing. Without Him, we can do nothing. So he says, Who are these olive trees? And I answered again and said to him, uh, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? So through them, God's Spirit will move to, ma to motivate, to teach, to guide, to lead uh, the end-time work. And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord, I, I still don't know. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth. And again, that is the only place, apart from Revelation 11, that this is mentioned. So he's speaking here of the two witnesses at the end. And they are the Zerubbabel and Joshua of this context. Uh, right here, I don't know that we necessarily need to go through Zechariah 5. I've explained it before. It's speaking, I believe, of Worldwide Church of God, uh, which was speaking to the world. And uh, in putting forth God's law, this flying scroll was uh, the same size as the ark, uh, as the... Uh, uh, I'm trying to say ark, that's not what I mean, the... Uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And those who do not live by what was in that, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, will be cut off. A sin cuts you off from God. Anyway, uh, it has a basket like a harvest, harvest of God's people, and it has a lead weight thrown in its mouth to shut it up. And when Worldwide Church came apart, uh, its voice was lost. It was shut up. And then these two unclean birds, which I've referred to as the Tokachis, came and set it upon its place in Babylon, which uh, they did take it. Uh, 
right back into evangelical Protestantism, uh, a religion of Babylon. So we're talking about the end-time church here with Zerubbabel and Joshua, and right in the middle of that it's talking about what has happened to the church, and it has to be gathered, the, the faithful have to be gathered out of this world, <clears throat> the Babylon and the confusion that is Satan's system that the church is still in. Anyway, let's go to chapter 6, because it's uh, referring again to the leaders here. Uh, I'll, I'll not go through the first few verses. We've been there before about these chariots and horses and so on uh, that quieted God's spirit in the north country. So uh, the north country is where destruction is coming from, the Assyrian and its coalition. Uh, but these horses spoken of here quiet God's spirit in the north country. So uh, it has reference to the worldwide work here at the end that will be done by Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant church, the quiet God's spirit uh, when this nation is destroyed. Uh, he will look only to his remnant end-time church at that point, and what they do to preach a witness to the world will quiet God's spirit, spoken of as horses here, but I think it's referring, of course, to people who do God's will and God's way. How is his spirit going to be quieted any other way, verse 8? Anyway, uh, verse 9, uh, I think, shows that that is the context of which we are speaking here. Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai, of Tobijah, and Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come you the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So he calls for four men uh, that are come out of the Babylonian system, and to take them into the house of Josiah. I looked up the, uh, the names of these four men in the Hebrew. Uh, Heldai uh, is the first one, and Heldai means worldly, having come out of Babylon. Uh, now, he speaks of the same four men <clears throat> down in verse 14, and their names, two of them, names are changed there. So, Heldai means worldly, but Helam, in verse 14, means strength or dream. And uh, it makes a notation that in the Hebrew it's also spelled Heldai. So it's the same name. Uh, Helam and Heldai are the same. But Heldai specifically, the Hebrew word, is worldly, and the other one is strength or dream. So God often changes names to fit what people do or what people become, just like we are to become something and get a new name when Christ returns. So here he changed it a little bit. Uh, so here's someone who came out of Babylon in the world and then becomes a strength or something out of a dream. Well, we've, we saw visions there in Zechariah, and... Uh, these people are going to come out of that which we dream about. <laughs> we dream about, we look for, we pray for that which is to come and hope that these things happen soon. Anyway, Tobijah then means uh, Jehovah is good. So here's a man who, whose name represents God is good. And uh, it's the same in verse 14. Jediah means Jehovah has known. So here's someone that God has known. Jehovah has known. 
Uh, and then Josiah means whom Jehovah heals. Whom Jehovah heals. Uh, it also has a change of name in verse 14, and is changed to Hen, H-E-N. And that word means favor. So, here's someone who God heals, and whose name then changes to favor, or favored by God. Both are listed as the son of Zephaniah here. So it's, it's a, a change. So these are good names in the Hebrew, or they are turned, changed into something good in all four cases. So God says, take these four and bring them to the house of Josiah. Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. So here's speaking of the same individual that is spoken of in Zechariah 3. Uh, the, the high priest, and these crowns are for him, silver and gold. Doesn't de define them, but more than one crown. And speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. That's listed there in Zechariah 3, those signs and wonders bringing forth the branch. He's going to show up as a result of the signs and wonders there. So he says, he will go up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Eternal. So we saw in chapter 4 that Zerubbabel laid the foundation, and here it says he will build the temple. So he's going to be the one in overall charge, uh, having laid a foundation. I, I think that means having established a congregation or a church at one point, and then uh, the two did not see eye to eye for some time. But when these miracles and wonders happen, He's going to come up out of his place. There's going to be a growth spurt, if you will, and he will take on the job of building the temple and will finish it, chapter 4 says. Even he shall build the temple of the eternal, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So it's speaking of Joshua, and it says here that the branch, or Zerubbabel, will appear, and that then they will uh, have peace between them. Isaiah 52 says that when the turnaround comes, they will see eye to eye and sing together. So there's a time here when they were not together, they did not agree, uh, but at this point, when the remnant comes together, when God begins to bless the work that Joshua and the ones that have been called with him begin to have the signs and wonders occur, that is going to bring the branch, and he will be revealed as to who he is, and then they will have a council of peace between them. I think that shows that the council of peace had not been there. And the crowns shall be to Helam and to Dubijah, and to Jediah, and to him, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Eternal. So, speaking of four people there in verse 10, who gathered at one of their houses, Josiah's house, and here they'll be given crowns as a memorial in the temple. So, they have done something apparently notable. Uh, it's interesting that it's four, because when it talks about the four horns that come to destroy and then four who cast them out and fray them. Uh, I wonder if it's the same individuals who are written of here who have done something that is 
memorable to the church here in the end time and be rewarded for their faithfulness, their patience, for God working through them. And their names certainly, I think, are significant in those terms. God heals. God gives favor. What are we talking about? We're talking about a time here when God begins to give favor. So it seems that it's speaking of the same uh, men who will be there uh, around Joshua uh, at the time that the branch comes forth. And they will be rewarded for their faithfulness that they have shown. Verse 15, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Eternal, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So, uh, speaking of the same time of Haggai, uh, people will come from afar to build the temple. Zerubbabel will be in charge of that and will take credit and, and direct the building of the temple. And Joshua and Zerubbabel will be ruling together there, but Zerubbabel obviously is the uh, more prominent of the two. And then the, the remnant will come as God stirs them to build the temple. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, your God. So the same warning is given here that was given in Zechariah 3 to Joshua and to the men that stood before him. Uh, these things that he's talking about here in the end-time temple are going to come to pass if we will diligently obey God. So they're going to happen, but we have our responsibility. We have to do God's will. We have to follow his ways. We have to obey him. And then he says, if we will do our part, these things are going to happen. Now, I would assume that he is going to do it regardless he makes it very clear uh, that Zerubbabel's hands will finish the temple. Uh, but these crowns being given to the faithful four, these crowns being given to Joshua, are contingent upon he and the people around him diligently obeying God. Now, Christ did say, I can raise up stones. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't do that. And if he has to, he will. He'll still get his work done. Uh, but he's given the opportunity to some people, and then it's up to them to do their part so that God can go ahead and finish what he has started. So there you have uh, a layout of the leadership of the church which is to come, and it even tells you how it's going to happen. We get back into Isaiah 40, which is where I think we'll probably go next, and show the work of Joshua uh, from chapter 40 forward, and how it then becomes where, well, it'll show uh, Zerubbabel uh, coming forth at some point. So we'll probably go there next and, and review that, but we're, we're out of time for today. So we'll stop there at the end of Zechariah 6 and pick it up next week, God willing.